0: So uh, while we were on holidays, uh, these last two weeks, uh, relaxing and, in, and enjoying ourselves, uh, one of the things that I did was I uh, had to replace some boards on our deck. And uh, as some of you may know, over the course of this past year and all of the things that the world has endured and the, and the uh, shifts and challenges and, and changes in uh, global economics, uh, the price of lumber has changed significantly. So I had to buy... Uh, three boards to replace the deck, which uh, just got at Home Depot, cost uh, eighteen thousand dollars. <laughs> and uh, I know you're thinking, uh, "What a deal!" Uh, <laughs> but uh, it did change significantly. So I, re- I replaced these three boards, and and the reason I do it a, bo- a board at a time is because, of course, it's much less it's much more economical every year to just replace the rotten board. So I've been doing that. So it's a little bit like Theseus ship where if I just one board at a time replace this deck, the philosophical conundrum is, is it in the end a new deck or is it the same deck? And uh, so this morning, as we come to God's word, um, we are encouraged at, uh, in Matthew chapter seven, the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount on building our lives on a solid foundation. Now this deck, uh, years ago, I had to pull the, the uh, the bottom section off and I actually did it by hand with no tools, because it was so rotted that whoever built it originally built it directly on the dirt, and um, so it rotted, and I was able to just pop all the boards out because they were just so destroyed. And this text in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 29, the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount um, is where Jesus famously calls us to build our lives on him, the firm foundation, and uh, not on anything else which is like unto sand. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on the house, but it did not fall. Because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. This is God's word. And we come to the end of Christ's sermon here. We've been actually studying it for seven weeks. And I don't expect you all to remember all the nuances of, uh, of all of it. Uh, I surely don't remember all the nuances of it, but Jesus has taught comprehensively this famous Sermon on the Mount. And when he comes to his conclusion, to borrow from my homiletics prof, uh, Dr. Brian Chappelle would say, when you come to the conclusion of your sermon, what's last, lasts. Like that's what people are going to remember. They don't remember the, the things that you said in the middle of, of, of your teaching. They rarely remember that. But what's last, lasts. So when Jesus gets to the end of his sermon, which he taught on a mountain, can you imagine if I taught the Sermon on the Mount from front to back with all the children here, just like they did in the first century, they weren't sending them off to children's ministry. You know, that's like a 19th century invention. So the, 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 the families were all together on the hill. And can you imagine that when Jesus gets to the end, he's not like, and just before I close this out, we're going to introduce a new idea. Building your life on me. Like the whole thing is actually about that. And if you actually go back and kind of walk your way through, there is this poetic Hebrew parallelism, uh, you know, literary device of two paths. And I've been saying this over the weeks. Two ways to relate to prayer. Two ways to relate to wealth. Two ways to relate to the poor. Two ways to rel- relate to um, you know, your good works. Two ra- ways to relate to all of these things. And you get to the end, and now you've got two ways to relate to what you've ultimately built, built your life upon. So Jesus is bringing it all together, and there's a massive Easter egg here. Okay? Massive Easter egg. He's, Jesus says in verse 24, and he repeats it, he says, he who hears these words of mine and does them. Now, that's a massive Easter egg because uh, that's the language of Leviticus 18. That's the language of Deuteronomy uh, 30. That's the language of Deuteronomy 31. That's the language of God's law. Saying, he who does this will live. And here's Jesus. Think of it now. This is why everybody's astonished at his authority. Because Jesus is now putting the words of God Almighty in his own mouth. And, he, and, and what he is saying is, O.P.S., oh, what I'm saying right now is so divinely, cosmically authoritative, eternally true, etern- eternally uh, beautiful, eternally divine. He says, he who does these words of mine and uh, he hears them and does them, he will live. And so everybody's like, this is like what we call in the business a theological callback. So everybody who knows the Torah, and, and many of them have read and studied, and, or sorry, not read, but heard and studied it since childhood, they're sitting there and going, did you hear what he just said? Like, did he, just, did he just take the words of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and put those in his own mouth and say, he who does these things that I'm saying, if you build your life on me, you'll live. So they're all blown away by this. And what does Jesus do after the Sermon on the Mount? But he spends the next three years showcasing in tenderness his transcendence. In like glorious patience with the sinners, with his power. He spends the next three years showcasing he's the rock. Showcasing he is God. He is the one who has come to make all things new. He is the one who will come uh, to die for the sin of humanity and then ultimately end renew all, all things. And that's what he's showing is that he is uh, the rock of the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, he's directing all of our direction here. And so he uses this analogy of this storm. A storm that comes and tears one's life down. Now, we can, we can talk about the storms of life. That's appropriate. You can think about it that way. Right? Everybody's life has storms. And, and what does a storm look like in your life? And you can think about that. That's appropriate. That's good. But this is bigger. And we can't miss it. Like, we don't want to just reduce Jesus to being like, Hey, I know we all go through hard times. But if you lean on me, that hard time you're going through will ultimately be not crush you. Like that's good and appropriate. We ought to think that way, but this is bigger um, because storms reveal what's not solid. Storms reveal when something is rotten. Like, nothing like pressure and storms uh, showcase that. I told you that I replaced a couple boards on my deck. Well, during the day when the sun is beating down and it's sunny and shining, they kind of blend in. I mean, you can tell they're newer, but after a couple of winters, they don't really look all that different. But when the storm comes, this morning when I woke up and the rain was beating down on the deck, you could just look at it and immediately go one, two, three. Those are renewed. The rest of this stuff has got to go. Nothing shows you need for renewal like storms. This is, Jesus is getting to the, the core of the desire, of the longing of the human soul. And he is really provoking us to ask the question, why is your future secure? What's the answer to that? Why is it secure? When you look at the future and it's like a fog, what do you turn to? Where do you go? What do you cling on to? What is the first thing that pops into your mind when that storm of life is happening and you are like, I just need some reprieve. I need some quiet. I need, something to, I need something to alleviate the anxiety, the stress, the sorrow. When you want to fall on your couch and cry, like what's that thing where you're like, I just need this? And the answer to that question is your true king. That thing is your king. That thing is what your life is built on, even functionally in that moment. It doesn't mean that you're not saved and you don't love Jesus. It means that in that moment, something has become your functional rock. And if it isn't Jesus, the thing that we're turning to, then he calls it sand, this shifting thing that does not last. And why does Jesus push us here? Um, Because, again, it just seems like there's lots of good ways to muscle through. I mean, the entire book of Proverbs, the wisdom literature of Scripture is like, you know, you've got the rich leaning on their wealth, and they are so insulated from suffering because they can... They kind of have so much wealth that it, it, it's out there. Like, you know, there's problems in the world and boy, that's really bad. And I feel terrible for those people, but actually I'm doing okay. So Proverbs seems to be pointing to all of these different little messiahs you can be trusting in. The health and the vitality of your body. Maybe your political horse won the race and you're really excited because, you know, they're the salvation of economics and, and uh, cultural uh, uh, social renewal, right? Like there's all these things we can sort of trust in. So why is Jesus provoking to say, I know those things all seem to work, but they ultimately don't work. It's because beyond just life's storms, and it is good for us to, I think, sit in reflection on that, where we turn in those moments. Like, I think that's good. But beyond life storms, Jesus is actually poking at an ultimate storm, like an unavoidable storm. It's in verse 22, right? It's, it's like on that day. It's why he starts the text by saying, you know on that day, what's the that day? Well, he kind of walks, he, he flushes that out in other sermons all through his teaching. But Jesus starts out by saying, on that day, there's a lot of people saying, oh, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, on that day, this, this unavoidable storm that's going to flatten everything, he goes on "On that day. Some are going to say, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, I actually, I don't know you. And so, whoa, whoa, whoa. We, we can't reduce... The, 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 the glorious cosmic level teaching of Christ who's come not to just be another Moses but to show that he's greater than Moses to say boy y'all better all put all your chips on me because this ultimate storm is coming and it's in verse uh, 22 he points to that on this day that this is coming um, this flash flood you know this is judgment day the unavoidable inevitable storm for all of uh, us human beings is is death and Judgment Day before uh, God, after death. I we like, say, oh man, you know, why did you have to go there and talk about judgment? Because, I mean, I just love the modern constructs of God so much. He's kind of like this, just this ancient hippie who's just like love and peace and, and forgiveness. He is all those things. Oh my goodness. He's those things more than you know. But you're like, why do we have to talk about this judgment? I just want a God who's not judgy. No, you don't. If you're here this morning and you're exploring Christian faith, or if you're listening online and you're wondering about it, and you're like, why does the Bible have to get talk about judging? You and I live in a world of radical, shifting, subjective judgment. The world has always been a place of radical, subjective judgment. And it will always be a world of subject. In fact, the modern construct of the God of no judgment is not a God worth worshipping. If I stood up here and just said to you, you know, there's no judgment, you know, God God doesn't judge, he just winks at everything, and in the end everything is okay, you all should just get up and walk away. Because that God is not a God of love, to be a God of no judgment. Now thinking of the world that we live in. Oh, here's an issue, and here is how you ought to think about this issue. And anybody who doesn't feel and think this way about this issue is immediately Judged. We live, in a, we live in a culture of incredible judgment. And ironically, comically I think, we want desperately to be a culture of no judgment. But I don't know if I'm the only one that's finding this hilariously off, but in our quest to be a culture of no judgment, we're like, hey, we want to be a culture of no judgment. Here's the rules here are the rules you must follow in order to be a part of this club we've created called the club of non-judgment and everybody who doesn't check all the exact same boxes is a hateful bigot so i don't know how it is that two people can look at an issue arrive at two different conclusions of the issue and then say but p.s the way that i am looking at it happens to be the correct way in my human subjective way of understanding the world your way is the wrong way therefore i am an open-minded and wise thoughtful person and you're a hateful bigot. I mean, you can pick any, any issue and this is the dilemma that we, we face in the culture today of radical judgment. So when we come to this text and Jesus says there is an unavoidable storm coming and it's judgment, friends, I have good news. This is actually tremendously good news because what it means is in the end... It's not just this cosmic obliteration of all things and then all of the existence of humanity is like a stain in the cosmos in which we – in the end of all things, never, there's no you know, rhyme or reason that proof that humanity ever existed. But rather there is a renewal. There is a God who created all things and he will restore all things and there will be this perfect and divine judgment whereby he will put all things right. I mean it's, it could not be more perfect. But all of those who deserve judgment, which is all of us, who trust in Jesus, the only one who walked out perfect wisdom and love and grace, who not only spoke truth to power, but then laid down his life and died for that power. I mean, there is, in the cross we find mercy and grace like we can't fathom. And because that is true, because of this divine judgment, it is actually a day of deliverance, incredible deliverance. Every time a judge pronounces judgment, there is simultaneous deliverance. Every time a judge, if they're a just judge, bangs the gavel down and says guilty as charged, the other half of the courtroom is dancing in the street because justice means deliverance. And so because our God is a God of tremendous grace and not merely a cosmic uh, uh, perfectionist, Because if he were a cosmic perfectionist, then all of us would be damned. But he's a God of tremendous grace who came. So Jesus is teaching at the Sermon on the Mount, you've got to put all your chips on me. Where else are you going to put them? You're not actually able to live the life that God requires of love and grace and peace and love for neighbor and laying your life down for enemies. We want to do it, we fail to do it. That's who we were created to be. It's also who we fail to be. In this room, we have varying measures of, I mean, some of the boards here are more, more renewed than others, maybe. But there's not any one of us in here, starting with this preacher, who can get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and go, praise God, I think I'm good. I mean, I've read the words of Jesus. I'm looking at my life and I'm thinking to myself, I don't think this judgment day thing is a problem for me. This is the wrong response. You actually, to to borrow from the Puritan theologian, Jonathan Edwards, you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and one of the responses to say, oh Lord, deliver me from the Sermon on the Mount. You realize you need grace. You realize that you need this God of cosmic forgiveness and grace. And this is precisely what Jesus provides and gives. And so the good news of Jesus Christ coming, and not just simply being another Moses and giving the third reading of the law on the mountain, but to come to say that he's the one who is greater than Moses, who would lay his life down for our sin, and because of his divine resurrection, you know that that is the good news of the gospel. That is our message, church. That is the message. I mean, that's where in all of our conversations... That at some point, we, we want uh, the opportunity for our conversations to go on the goodness of God's love and grace and renewal and who Jesus Christ is. Because the message for us to the city is not to try and clean fish that aren't in the boat. I, our message to the city is not like, hey, here's all the ethics of the Bible. I happen to notice that the ethics of the city don't match with the ex- ethics of my, con- my faith conviction. So I need you to clean up your ethics on whatever issue, you know what I mean, pick one, so that you are a little more in line. You understand? If we, the followers of Jesus Christ, are in need of the Spirit of God and of His grace, so that this renewal is something that becomes to flourish and bubble up out of our soul that we walk this out. Our message to the city is the gospel. It is not the result of what the spirit-filled life does as a result of receiving the gospel. This is our message. You can't clean fish that aren't in the boat. We, the fish who are in the metaphorical boat, need, are praying every Sunday that God would clean us. And so, the gospel, this gospel, what Jesus has come to say, put all your chips on me, build your life on me, this is good news. It, to borrow from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the gospel is good news, not good advice. Because advice gives you something to do. News is something that you respond to. Jesus is looking for a response. I mean, Jesus numerous times and the apostles confirmed this to the New Testament. Testament. We are called to bend our knee to our king. We are called to obedience. We are called to... In prayer, say, Lord, I've noticed there's some rotten boards here that I need your spirit to just pop out of my life. Like we are called to obedience, putting off the old man, putting on the new humanity. We're called to these things. But that's a response to news. And if the good news of the gospel doesn't grip us, and we don't have the hope of the the, the good and wise wisdom of God's law guiding us, the law of God guides the renewed heart. The law of God does not have the power to renew the heart because that is not the job of the law. I mean, that's the first six chapters of Romans. That is not the job of the law to renew our heart. The job of the law is to show us that we need the renewed heart so that we hit our knees in humility and say, oh Lord, I need to pop some rotten boards out of here. And so this whole setting reveals that Jesus is not just showing up as as a new Moses. He's, He's actually intentionally recalling Moses, getting people to think about Moses, right? Moses' life was threatened at birth. Christ's life was threatened at birth. Moses uh, has to uh, flee Egypt. Christ, ironically, has to flee Mary and Joseph. They flee to Egypt. Moses delivers the law. Christ has now come on the mountain to deliver the law. But thank God he came to fulfill that law because you've got millennia of history of the people of God saying, we will do it, and then they don't bloody do it and so jesus comes to say you got to put all your chips on me and this is the good news of the gospel this is why jesus concludes with this exclamation point on the sermon saying you got to build on a rock here because he is looking for a response for us to you know build our our lives on him but you know it's critical to notice how he gets there right that's why he begins by saying um there's a lot of people who are going to say i prophesied my name i did all these good things like i don't know about you uh, but this was like a low exorcism week for me. Okay, I was, I've been on holidays, so I didn't cast out that many demons. But I'm sure that some of you picked me up while I was gone. They were like, Pastor, we got you. Oh, we know you're on holidays. We're going to do, uh, we're just going to up the exorcism game while you're chilling at the beach. Okay, so Jesus, notice the heightened language Jesus is using. He's like, some of you are going to be you know, prophesying on my name. Like, that's not a quote of something that actually happens. Jesus is using heightened language to say, there is people, religious people, who on that day of judgment, they trusted in the wrong thing. The problem is not with what they're doing. The problem is they're trusting in their doing. So he lists good things. Do you see the problem? If you back up the train, I don't have time to get into it, but if you back up from this text... Right before this, Jesus talks about false teachers and false prophet, prophets. And so now he's saying, well, here's the fruit of it. Here's the fruit of, false, of the false teaching that Jesus is referring to. What's the fruit of false teaching? It's not running off and doing bad things. That can be the fruit of false teaching, but that's not where Jesus goes. Contextually, the fruit of the false teaching is, hey, I'm good. Look at all the good stuff I'm doing. My church attendance is great. I'm doing all this good stuff. We're fine. And Jesus goes, man, the, the fruit of that false teaching is the, is the Pharisees, right? I'm good. Thank God I'm not like that person over there. And so we are given this uh, glorious picture of trusting in Jesus and not trusting in our doing. And I conclude the sermon today with this. How do we respond? I mean, how do we respond to Christ's sermon? How do we respond to the call of him saying, Build your life on me. I think there are uh, three responses. This is not new. I say these three responses to you guys all the time because, frankly, I'm one of the dullest knives in the theological drawer, and I feel like if I just keep it simple, I understand the New Testament much, much better in terms of what I'm being called to do. These three, th- these three responses are you can have a self-righteous response to this, you can have a rebellious response to this, or you can have a repentant response the self-righteous response to the Sermon on the Mount is, I got it. I'm doing it. I could have taken Sunday off. I mean, I don't even know why I came out into this tent to hear Paul tell me to build my life on Jesus because thank you, I'm doing that. That's the self-righteous response. No reflection, no repentance, no looking in the mirror. Oh God, are there some rotten boards in here? The spirit needs to pop off. No, I'm good. That's the self-righteous response. And then, but then there's the rebellious response. Hey man, I'm all about grace. I don't need to, I don't need to, don't, don't bog me down with conversations about judgment and calls to obedience and I'm about grace. Dude, I'm about grace. Susan and I and the team planted this church because for the first time in our adult lives, we had heard the message of, hold on a second, you're telling me Christ is enough? Apart from m- my faith, you're telling me. Jesus plus nothing is actually what God is after. If I trust in him, we're about grace. And the result of a biblical understanding of that scandalous level of forgiving and amazing grace is, I want to live to the glory of my King. The response to the grace of Jesus is not, don't talk to me about the instructions of scripture. Don't talk to me about reflection. Don't talk to me about repentance. I'm all about grace, man. No, if you're not about repentance and reflection and wanting to live to the glory of a your king, you're not about grace. I don't know what you're about. But you're, uh, you're about weird things uh, that are nothing like what the apostles taught. That's Romans 6, by the way. If you don't believe me, you can, you can fact check that. Like, that's just weird. A weird response to Jesus. And so, that's the rebellious response. The self-righteous person, got it. Rebellious person, don't need to obey and the repentant response is oh god um uh-huh. I want so much to build my life on this rock. I mean, I want so much to be unshakable that when the world seems to be melting, but yes, of course i 'm a human being, and i 'm going to have a, a, a sort of a response to that, but I will not be swept away in the current of worry and anxiety and uh, of everybody else because my life is truly founded on you, that even through my tears, even through my anxious moments that I would clamor to you like that 's what I want god the resp- The repentant response is not i don 't need this or i 'm already doing this. The The repentant response is, renew me, oh God, that I would image this. Renew me, O God, that, that, that I would actually reflect this. In some ways I do, praise you for that. In some ways I don't, oh God, pop those rotten boards off. This is the response, the repentant response. Confessing that we are not meeting the requirements of Christ's sermon, it actually makes us like the people right at the beginning of the sermon. Blessed are the poor. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus bookends that. And so may you rest in the loving acceptance of God. May your heart and your mind be at peace as you build your life on Jesus the rock. May God's grace strengthen you, church, in every storm. Mindful that you are already in his hands and you have already been saved From the finality of death, judgment, because you have been saved from that ultimate storm. United to Christ and full of his spirit, he will begin the good work that he's begun in you. Let's pray.